0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos. Today we'll be talking to John Hoffman and Jordan Cohen of the Cato Institute about why the U.S. needs to overhaul its policies in the Middle East, especially when we consider how the Biden administration's agenda has collapsed with the outbreak of a new war between Israel and Hamas. Before we get to that, first we will turn to a new article by one of the architects of that agenda, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who had the misfortune of authoring a high-profile foreign affairs piece outlining the administration's foreign policy vision that came out shortly before the war started. The original print version of Sullivan's article contained several overly optimistic assessments and boasts about the success of Biden's handling of regional issues, including the now infamous claim that the region is quieter than it has been for decades. The sections that were instantly discredited after October 7th were removed from the web version before it went online uh, in a, a little bit of editing. Uh, Of course, governments are always at risk of being tripped up and embarrassed by events, but in this case, the administration was oblivious to the problem that cropped up because they had been determined to ignore the Palestinians and bypass them entirely with their push for a Saudi normalization deal. To the extent that the region might have seemed quieter, this was the calm before the storm. What Sullivan's assessment shows is that the administration really didn't understand how badly their back-to-basics approach was failing, and they were completely unprepared for the storm when it did come. So, Kelly, what do you make of Sullivan's deleted claims about Biden's record in the Middle East, and uh, what did you think of the article as a whole?
1: I mean, as a whole, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of these uh, blobby declarations made by administration officials because they're really just packaged advertisements or promotionals for their – policies and I get that but they don't really inform me like say an expert who doesn't have an agenda or a special interest in um, you know covering up all of the warts and all of the you know pitfalls and problems inside the administration in order to sort of pursue a particular, line of interest. And the Biden administration has been so adept, I guess, in packaging its own propaganda regarding um, its policies, whether they be in Ukraine or the Middle East. And so when I see an article (laughs) like this one in Foreign Affairs, um, I, I immediately got my antenna up and uh very skeptical that i'm getting any new news or any um the the veracity of the you know whatever information or analysis that i'm that i'm getting is is actually um you know on, on 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 you know just on point i i'm more concerned and i'm not so much concerned but i think it's very telling the deletion of these particular items What this tells me is that the Biden administration was very comfortable in its assessments, its self-assessments of the Middle East up until now, because there weren't major conflicts or conflagrations occurring. We had a lot of small issues that were easily covered up by the mainstream media Over the course of two years, and I'm talking about things like Erdogan saying that he was going to invade Syria over the uh, PKK-backed Kurds that were our um, allies in the fight against ISIS in Syria. There are a lot of violence and hostility and tension in Syria that, that the mainstream media just wasn't paying attention to. We have troops there, as we've talked about many times on this show, that are like sit- sitting ducks. And they would be attacked by Iranian-backed militias. But because they weren't really getting hurt and there wasn't major damage happening, it wasn't considered a problem and easily glossed over by Jake Sullivan and his assessments. That's just one piece, that all of the stuff that's been happening in Israel, with the, uh, the, the the settlements with Netanyahu's moves in the West Bank obviously but also the ongoing tensions at, in in Gaza um, the constant barrage of Israeli missiles into Syria um, you know all the things that have been happening in Yemen uh, Saudi Arabia you know it's on and on and on we've been following this for two years but yet it's contained enough so that jake sullivan could say things like that the region is peaceful that um you know peace is breaking out the abraham accords are actually bringing this out about and so it wasn't until the mask was ripped off with these october 7th attacks did the administration feel the need to um edit out um their uh their comments because I think all of this was obviously happening under the surface. So it just goes to show you (laughs) that the the Biden administration has been operating in this assumption um, that the rest of the world isn't paying attention to the Middle East and they can say or do whatever they want uh, to placate you, um, but they really don't know what they're doing.
0: (laughs) And I think one of the, the problems with the, the article is that it was a, sort of a premature victory lap. They, they were already uh, in, in maybe even in election mode thinking that they're going to take credit for the, the supposedly good conditions that were prevailing um, as, as a way to, to set up Biden for his reelection election campaign. Yeah. And uh, when, you, when you take a victory lap before the race is even finished, uh, that, that's usually a bad way to go. Um And one of the things that I thought was strange about the article is that it billed itself as a foreign policy for a changed world. And so there there was some lip service to how the world is different from the way it was uh, earlier in the post-Cold War era and so on. But there's not really a lot of adaptation uh, to those changing conditions. Uh, You just see them sort of putting a a fresh coat of paint on the same old uh, doctrine, the same old strategy that we've seen year after year after year. And, and then they, they're congratulating themselves on, on the paint job, and it, it really doesn't uh, improve things very much. Uh, one of the things I, I thought was a very good comment on the article, uh, Emma Ackford on her substack, uh, what is to be done, uh, uh, nailed one of the, the big problems with Biden administration foreign policy. She says, they clearly recognize that there are trade-offs and accept that some regions are less important than others – but they're unwilling to actually take the steps to deprioritize those regions. And so when it comes down to it, they, they stick with the status quo that they've known. They're, they're, they don't take risks. They're not, they're not creative. They're not looking to adapt the U.S. approach to any region uh, to, to change conditions, even if their own strategy documents say that they should be doing that. Uh, they they can't actually follow through on it. They can't they can't execute it, whether for for whatever reason, whether it's fear of backlash at home or they they just don't have the bandwidth to make it happen. I don't know, uh, but they they just they won't follow through on the logic of their own list of priorities right. that, that that they claim to, to believe in. So it's uh it's not really a foreign policy for a changed world. It's It's a throwback to to the same old foreign policy that already failed us in in the previous world, and uh, it shows no signs of of improving anytime soon. The the instinctive reaction of the administration to the war and to the the humanitarian crisis that has been created by the war is essentially to to, uh, intensify their support for all existing policies. Uh, There's no reconsideration going on there's no questioning of any of the assumptions that led them here and so i I don't see things getting much better over the next year
1: yeah and that's exactly what i hate about these articles because they they promise more than they can deliver and so you end up reading several thousand words and realize that they're telling you everything that you already know but they never really actually promise any change or any acknowledgement that their policies are part of the problem, and so there's always this idea like, oh, we know it's a changed world, we know we have to look at American power differently. We can't just use the military to get what we want we've got to we have to look at t- taking different approaches, but they never really give us like the like The actual plan of how they're going to do it, everything's in these vagaries about um, what should be done or, you know, like we know that it's a different world. And and um, and they and they go painstaking through history to sort of show you that they are an understanding about the dynamics of this major shift, but then never really finish the job. Um, and leave you hanging, go, well, then what are you doing in Ukraine right now? What are you doing in the, with Israel? And where did all of your influence and, and leverage go? And why are your allies acting the way they do? And why are you trying to start a war with China over time <laughs> you know, It's like they're talking about another administration, and it's just like a big bore. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I understand up until now, Foreign policy was never going to change the trajectory of the 2024 elections, but I don't know about that now. I see the Biden administration facing a major backlash within its own party, the Democratic Party. like I've never seen, and I had not expected this to happen at all, so I do think suddenly foreign policy is going to make a difference. This Jake Sullivan foreign Foreign Affairs article is not really going to change anybody's minds or make or make anybody feel better about the administration's grasp of what the, these issues are and, 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 and the problems that, that they face and the challenges and that they're actually up to the job of, of rising to those challenges.
0: Right. Well, and, and I think Biden's response to the war and, and his, his full-on embrace, you know, the 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 bear hug of Netanyahu, as some people have described it, uh, has, has really backfired on him in a big way. Yeah. Uh, certainly with Muslim Americans and, and Arab Americans, but not just with them, but with with lots of progressives, with lots of people all, throughout the Democratic Party and outside of the Democratic Party, who you know were maybe more sympathetic to Biden in the election or were at least open to voting for him, and now they're they're looking at it. Uh, as a as a real uh, a real reason to to stay away from the polls or to vote for somebody else, uh, because as they see it, he's you know he's 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 always been wildly out of touch with the grassroots in his party on this issue in particular. But the sort of the the, the callousness and the 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 cruelty of the policy that he is embracing, especially with the siege of Gaza and, and cutting off the civilian population. Uh, from, from supplies of food and water and fuel, uh, that, that really, uh, rankles and, and, and angers people, uh, in a, in a big way and, and understandably so. And the, the basically blank check that he's given to the Israeli government, uh, as it continues to conduct indiscriminate bombing of in Gaza and, and, you know, leveling whole sections of the Gaza Strip now. I saw a, a, a statistic that something like 10% of all housing uh, in Gaza Strip has now been destroyed. And so some so hundreds of thousands of people are going to be displaced for, for a very long time because of that. Uh, th- these are the things that are driving people away from Biden and, and creating a real uh, political problem for him. And I don't think he even recognizes that problem, much less knows what, what to do about it, uh, be- because he's been so out of touch with his party on this front.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, every story that I see on this where the Biden administration is under pressure uh, to try to caution and, and advise Netanyahu about the humanitarian crisis on the ground is always predicated with Israel must be able to defend itself. And he keeps repeating that like a some sort of talisman. And I think at some point, the American people are going to demand a little bit more than that in terms of his the, an explanation as to where the United States is on this and what they're doing about it to prevent a, 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 a catastrophe that's already in the making.
0: Our guests today are John Hoffman and Jordan Cohen. They're both policy analysts in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute. John was the co-author with Justin Logan of a recent article in the National Interest called "Time to Change Course in the Middle East." Uh, welcome to the show, both of you, and uh, welcome back, John.
2: Uh, thank you both. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, it's our pleasure. And uh, yeah, I wanted to dig into the, the article uh, that you wrote, John, uh, with uh, with Justin Logan, uh, and I, I appreciated it very much because. It's an argument that needed to be made. Unfortunately, needed to be made. Uh, it, you take on a popular misconception that prevails in Washington that U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East has, in recent years, been aimed at reducing the U.S. role and extricating the U.S. from the region's conflicts. Uh, and and you you show uh, quite clearly that's not that's not true. So uh, tell us what what has the U.S. really been doing in the region in recent years? Uh, why is this this new popular idea uh, so misguided?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I you know, the past three administrations have run on a platform of pivoting away from the Middle East, ending endless wars, you know, uh, 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 whatever you want to call it, really. But what we've seen is continuity and not change. We've seen continued deep U.S. engagement in the region. And, you know, like you said, it, it was kind of sad that this argument had to be made, but it, it had to be made because the amount of people that came out, after the outbreak of war between Israel and Hamas, saying essentially, you know, this this is what a post-American Middle East will look like. This is what happens when we try to get out of the region, so on and so forth. So Justin and I really wanted to pump the brakes on this and say, hey, you know, this was not because of a lack of U.S. involvement in the region. This happened despite, you know, expansive U.S. involvement in the region. And uh, plans for broader, you know, regional designs, which I'm sure we'll get into the discussion here today. Um, but that—that that was the main reason we wanted to write this. Was saying, hold, hold on, you know, this happened under our watch, not in absence of our presence.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's—it's it's one of these funny uh, sorts of arguments that people will make where they'll—they'll they'll insist that the U.S. retain its its hegemonic role in a in a region, but then wash their hands of the consequences of having that hegemonic role. Uh, as, as though it, it can't be our doing even though we're still uh, heavily involved. Uh, well, one of those designs that you were talking about uh, is this uh, push for uh, Saudi-Israeli normalization uh, that the Biden administration was prioritizing uh, for most of this year. Uh, this was the so-called mega deal that would have involved U.S. guarantees to protect Saudi Arabia along with other major favors uh, while also requiring Israel to concede almost nothing or, or basically nothing of substance. Um, and so uh, and maybe, and maybe Jordan can take this question. Uh, what did the Biden administration misunderstand about the region in pursuing that goal? And do you see any signs that they have learned anything in the last few weeks about where they went wrong?
3: I'll start from the second question, just because I think it is relevant, which is, no, I don't think they've learned anything, just given the amount of statements we're seeing that actually this is a sign that we should have done the deal. And the Biden administration released a statement where it was basically saying, like, ah, you see, the reason Hamas did this is because we were almost at a deal with Saudi Arabia, which was kind of crazy to me, if you think about it, that the Biden administration was ostensibly bragging about 10,000 people being dead because of the nuclear deal. Uh, it seemed like kind of a weird, weird thing to brag about, but but they were. And my point in saying that is, I don't think they've learned anything. I think, if anything, they're digging their heels in deeper. And I think the big misunderstanding, and John can speak to this too, for for obvious reasons, the misunderstanding is that Saudi Arabia not only is "quote unquote" stable, but provides a role in stabilizing. Every other conflict within the region and that if you just created a Saudi, Israel, UAE, U.S. axis, it would ostensibly counter Iran and deter Iran from doing anything. But in reality, what we've seen in the Middle East is that it's not just the state actors that are threats to stability, but especially the non-state actors.
0: Definitely. And one one of the other uh, consequences of trying to build up that, that anti-Iranian axis, of course, is that it. It stokes tensions. It creates uh, new occasions for conflict uh, in addition to the ones that are already there. Um, uh, t- turning back to the, the national interest piece, one uh, what, what of the things that you guys pointed out uh, is that the, the U.S. needs to scale back its foreign policy uh, so that it actually matches up with what our, our genuine interests are, uh, which are relatively few in the region. One uh, of the recurring mistakes that Washington has made in its policies is over-investing in the region because our leaders greatly overestimate the region's importance to U.S. interests. And I know it's, it's been sort of a recurring uh, theme in, in Justin's writing and in yours that, that U.S. interests uh, in the Middle East are actually quite limited and and don't require uh, the level of attention or the or the, the, uh, the resources that we devote to it. Uh, so, so imagine, if you will, that... Uh, you're you're advising the White House, uh, and there's somebody in the White House who's actually interested in listening to what you're saying. What would U.S. foreign policy in the region look like if you were to scale it back to match interests, uh, to match the interests that our country really has?
2: I think at the most basic level, it would involve uh, an ending of arms sales to these very, very unstable and and uh, nefarious actors, as, as Jordan's work has highlighted numerous times. And then it would also involve uh, limit, limiting our military basing in the region as well. You know, there are currently 33 or 35,000 troops in the region. Uh, two more aircraft carriers were just sent to the Eastern Mediterranean. Each of those housing 7,500 troops each. 4,000 more troops were Deployed to the region in the wake of this conflict, and another two thousand on standby. So, you know, we need to end the overly militarized approach to the Middle East that just sees Washington throwing money, weapons, and, and military assets, and instead move towards diplomacy. Because, as Jordan just mentioned, you know, our you know strategies of of maximum pressure, our strategies of over militarization of the region just just does not work. And you know, uh, it, it's ironic that. President Biden came out, you know, after... Uh, after October 7th and said, hey, you know, you know, wanting to the Israelis, you know, but don't repeat the same mistakes that that we did after 9-11. We've yet to internalize those mistakes and we continue to make those mistakes. So, you know, we haven't even learned them yet. So, you know, that, that's kind of overall our approach to this is, is limited strategic interests in the Middle East, limited means needed to accomplish those interests. And what we're
3: seeing in Washington is actually the opposite. Yeah, to follow up on that, I mean, part of me would say if somebody was actually willing to listen to us and change policy, I would kind of say, "All right, we're going to spend a few nights at the office. So figure out your favorite fast food restaurants and let's sit down and sit down and write it." Because at the end of the day, it, the flaws in the U.S. policy in the Middle East start at the top and go all the way down. It, it, it the, the idea of why the region is important has been flawed ostensibly since the end of the First World War. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. The, the Every year that goes by is another year. The U.S. has dug in further. And at the end of the day, and John and I have worked on this a little bit, but Iran isn't any weaker, right? It, it, deterrence and maximum pressure hasn't worked. I mean, the big fear now is if there's a direct conflict with Iran, how many U.S. troops are going to have to die just to get a foot on land? There was a Report a few years ago that said it would be 1.3 million troops just to hold territory in Iran, which is an absurd number. And it really makes you question, like, okay, even if we take it, at, take the policy at its own goals and what it says it's for, which is to create stability in the region, to deter bad guys from getting dangerous weapons, et cetera, that isn't working, right? So even on their own grounds, the administration and US policy in general have not really kind of settled on what is uh, actual feasible and effective policy that protects U.S. interests in the region.
1: Thanks for coming on, guys. It's uh, great to hear you again and um, just really a big fan of your work and what you've been doing uh, in the wake of the October 7th attacks and aftermath. Let's I, Just to go back on what, our posture should be in what it is. I've been hearing some uh, problematic talk, whether it be on Capitol Hill or in uh, the more hawkish mainstream media, like national security type commentary, that Hamas and its operations in Israel are indicative of a bigger terrorist problem that's growing in the region and i feel like this is being used by the usual suspects to 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 keep us not only in the region but keep us overly vigilant through the usual threat inflation that had worked so well in the 2000s and the global war on terror i'm hearing the same rhetoric that we have to stay in the region and if not increase our assets in the region because Israel had an intelligence breakdown and had been caught flat-footed by their Hamas problem. We can't be caught flat-footed or unawares because of a growing ISIS problem or whatever Islamic terrorist issue might be growing and happening in other parts of the region. Are you hearing this too? Are you worried that this is just another justification for um, renewed mission creep in the Middle East?
2: Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I think we've seen this, uh, you know, equating of Hamas with ISIS, you know, uh, uh over the past couple weeks. Uh, I think it was yesterday, Monica Marx had a really great piece, uh, trying to debunk this, trying to, you know, say Hamas and ISIS are not the same thing. Uh, I myself teach a course at George Mason on, uh, political Islam where we, highlight how Hamas is not the same thing as as al-Qaeda and ISIS you know they're driven by different ideologies you know different uh you know m- maybe similar methodologies but but different ideologies here Um, So, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, we see the terrorism card being used. We see uh, the Iran and the new axis of evil card being used. Uh, I think, you know, we're seeing all uh, a a repeat of all the typical, you know, sound bites that are often used to justify U.S. deep engagement in the Middle East. Um, but when examined, you know, none of them really hold up to scrutiny, you know, uh, counter, you know, counterterrorism interests in the Middle East. You know, the U.S. presence has often had a uh, had the opposite effect of actually fueling the grievances and underlying tensions that, you know, lead to radicalization. You know, it, it's it's cast its lot into countries such as Saudi Arabia, who fuel this type of, you know, who for decades fueled this type of ideology and for who, you uh, Decades, you know, funded this uh, uh, very puritanical version of Islam, and and now this quote-unquote pivot to to moderate Islam is is just an effort to you know crush dissent under the uh, the guise of countering extremism. So, you know, I think you know what we're seeing is just repeated all around the horn here, whether it be counterterrorism, stability in the Middle East, oil, what have you. All these different arguments are just uh, they're so outdated, but they keep coming back. And
3: uh, despite being despite being wrong.
1: Jordan, you want to add to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think generally speaking, the language about Hamas has been strange to me is a when it is being framed as a U.S. security threat. And it feels similar to me to when Boko Haram is talked about as a U.S. security threat. Right. These organizations that frankly want nothing to do with the United States, they don't it's not an important player for them. It's secondary, maybe, or tertiary, but it's not part of their ideology, uh, as John kind of noted. I also think, in general, terrorism is a weird thing to hype up, including the deaths on 9-11. Americans are more likely to die from falling furniture every year than they are from terrorism. Terrorism is not a security threat. We do things every day that are greater security threats than terrorism that aren't policed at all. And I think this focus on terrorism really just gets, I mean, it is threat inflation and is kind of Cato Institute legend John Mueller talks about threat inflation and terrorism, but it is threat inflation of the greatest extreme, where this is something that is not a threat really at all that has become a key cornerstone of foreign policy.
1: I, I agree with you that it is in the extreme. But for the military industrial complex, it is it is it is just sort of basic operating procedure. So they will go out there. And I mean, they meaning members of the um, the Pentagon staff, the E-ring, they go there, they're making um, they're they're making speeches uh, to the members of Congress, whether in closed door hearings and open door hearings, and they're basically saying that we got a problem here and we don't want to to fall into the same trap as Israel did on October 7th. So we've got to be vigilant. We have to have these assets in there. We have to keep you know central command going. But we got to the point before this all happened where there was some acknowledgement that we should be reducing our footprint from both sides of the aisle. I believe that I feel is going to be blown out of the water now with what happened on October 7th, that all of these creatures of the military industrial complex come back and now they just have a foothold and Hey, central commands happy. They want, they want to keep their business going. They want to make sure that their footprint is not shrinking they have to sustain their budgets. So, I mean, I know I'm speaking very cynically here, but I think all of us on the call here know, <laughs> on the podcast rather, know that this is this is how they operate, uh, and it's unfortunate. Um, I wanted to change, just before we go, I wanted to change the conversation just a bit. I wanted to talk about uh, Josh Paul, who resigned from the State Department shortly after the uh, retaliatory strikes began in Gaza, citing u s weapons aid to Israel and He had been in a position in the State Department which oversaw the the transfer of weapons uh, to Israel and had complained that unlike the weapons assistance that went to other countries where there had been some semblance of vetting for Leahy laws, meaning that to make sure that these weapons weren't going to recipients who were going to use them in the, uh, the process of, of violating human rights as per the, the Leahy laws, that with Israel, we gave them the weapons first and then vetted the recipients later And even when they did find that Israel had been using the weapons to violate human rights, whether in in Gaza or in the West Bank, that there was political pressure, and those are his words, not mine, to basically throw it under the rug and um, take the case no further. I would imagine, particularly Jordan, I know you're watching this, this has to be... um, I, I just a major um, critical turning point in the debate over our weapons and where they're going and how they're being used. When you have somebody from the state department saying, yeah, we've been blowing off those, those Leahy laws in essence, when it comes to Israel.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So the Leahy laws were kind of a series of two laws that were passed in the 1990s. Uh, Senator Patrick Leahy, he worked with the Republicans in Congress uh, it, the, the background is they were actually designed to create uh, more transparency about sending weapons to Colombia, but they generally guide human rights and security systems. And what they say is any military unit, and that, that is important, it's not, a, it's not country specific, it's unit specific. Uh, Any military unit that is committed to gross violations of human rights is not allowed to receive security assistance. And generally speaking, lady vetting happens every year, and every year there are military units that don't get weapons. What makes Israel unique is the way it gets the security assistance. So it's all part of this foreign military financing, which is where it the start of the year when the budget's passed, it says country X will receive X amount of money in foreign military financing, and they can use this money to buy U.S. weapons. What makes Israel unique is for every other country, they receive this money in quarterly payments, which means they can only spend so much of it every quarter, which provides the U.S. the ability to vet, right? So the country X says, we want this weapon system. The U.S. has about three to four months to vet whatever unit's going to receive those weapons. Israel receives it all up front. And then the other thing Israel can do is they can actually put it in U.S. bonds, like the U.S. Treasury bonds which means the value that Israel gets can increase over time and they're sensibly holding it against US debt. So, a, the way they hold the money is incredibly different. B, because of how they get the money, it is harder to vet because they can just spend it all at once. And C, when it even comes to vetting, there's certain requirements that Israel can avoid, especially with how they structure their military units. They vary a lot, which means it's very difficult to pick a specific unit in IDF right. that has abused human rights. So it's wow. a it's a big problem. I think it's great that Josh Paul has come out and spoken on this. And I hope it extends beyond just security assistance to Israel and to all the other countries that abuse human rights in the region yet still receive U.S. weapons.
1: Well, I really appreciate you guys um, coming on. And there's just so much going on and I'm as we're speaking I'm seeing my like chats my chat groups exploding with new news you know every every time I glance down on my phone so um, thank you guys uh, for coming on and for all of your writing your latest piece at the National interest I hope you'll be writing for me at responsible statecraft soon but I hope you'll also come back on the podcast um, as as these issues develop.
2: No, absolutely. Thank you both for having us on. Yeah, Thank you so much for having us. This was great.
1: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.